give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. I'm Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Zoe from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you live every Friday from the People's Dispatch Facebook page and later as a podcast. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Today is July 2nd. Um, July 2nd being an important day because um, yesterday was July 1st the 100th anniversary of the communist movement in China. There was a big celebration there, which included Jackie Chan singing Defend the Yellow River. We'll come back, friends, to the events in China. You've just joined Give the People What They Want on, um, on all the channels, uh, coming to you from People's Dispatch with Prashant and Zoe the co-editors of People's Dispatch, and myself, Vijay, from Globetrotter. Uh, great to be with you. I hope very much that, um, I hope very much that you'll be uh, with us, that you've been telling your friends about us, and so on. Well, um, I want to start by saying that some news has come out from Europe, from the OECD, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the main capitalist uh, bloc, which has announced a new tax rate for multinational corporations set at 15%. Now, friends, um, this was a big negotiation, took place at the G7 meeting, took place um, in the bilateral meetings held by Mr. Biden. Uh, United States put pressure on many countries. Great Britain didn't want this. The city of London, a real gangster's paradise for international corporations. Germany eager for it, a big battle among the Europeans, eventually an agreement comes into effect in 2023. Let's see how it goes. Is this really, is this really going to mean pressure on large multinational corporations not to be able to move jurisdictions? Um, is this going to mean that they have to pay a 15% threshold of taxation? All the devil are in the details. Devil is always in the details of agreements like this. But 15% from big corporations, dif more difficult for them to hide in tax havens, an interesting development. Let's see where we go. Meanwhile, speaking of tax havens, speaking of uh, people not being able to be in charge and running for their life, news comes from Swaziland, where the king, King Maswati, Apparently, not clear what's going on there. Prashant will tell us. Apparently, running for his life, running out of Swaziland. I hope he has a bank account somewhere in a tax haven, um, Prashant, because I don't think anybody is sympathetic right now to King Maswati of Swaziland. What's happening in that country? Absolutely, Vijay. Swaziland is a country which People's Dispatch, we've been covering, our correspondent power especially, has been covering for quite a long time. The pro this is not something new. This is a process that has been ongoing for months, for years, through the activities of trade unions, through the activities of the Communist Party, other opposition parties. At the heart of these protests, and this were the king fled following massive protests that broke out in the country, was a very simple demand that democracy be representative, that you know the king's control over the economic, social, and political life of that country no longer be allowed to continue as it is. In fact, one of the 
manifestations of these protests have been actions against property owned by the king and the range of property he owns is incredible the, he he's he's in charge of a corporation which seems to have ventures in almost every aspect of life in swaziland so massive protests breaking out also against the fact that the pal there is a parliament and there's a prime minister but of course the prime minister is appointed by the king there's a parliament which can be dissolved at any point by the king the upper house of parliament is appointed by the king the lower house again there is a uh, what do you call an arrangement of chiefs who have to approve the candidates that are appointed so there is this huge uh, situation where the monarchy the feudal system basically controls every aspect of life in swaziland it's an absolute monarchy so the protests against this have been building up for quite a few days what we saw was that protesters trying to deliver petitions to members of parliament one of the most basic forms of democratic protest you know what is considered your right in uh, almost every country in the world and each time they try to do that the police security forces targeting the protesters multiple attacks happening massive crackdowns at some point when the police did not do their job properly when they refused the army was brought in very <clears throat> very scary numbers because on 29th and 30th i think about 24 people were reported killed over 70 reported injured and these are definitely these are definitely uh, this is definitely being under reported because there are also internet crackdowns that are taking internet uh, crackdowns that are taking place which means communication is disrupted the information that is coming in for instance from our sources in the communist party of swaziland is coming through sms messages to their activists who are in exile outside the country who have been providing these reports so a very volatile situation and there are reports of children being fired at there are reports of unarmed protesters you know agitating on the streets who have been fired uh, fired at policemen barging into homes and attacking people so there's this complete uh, situation of uh, violence but at the same time at its core there is a clear element of instability as well which i think the people the trade unions the protesting sections have realized that and that is how they take it forward reports are like you said that the king fled on the 28th of june now it's not 100% sure but there are various alternatives regarding how to take it forward the communist party of swaziland has called for a national democratic convention they are very clear that they don't want any monarchy at all in the life of the people and if you look at some of our earlier stories from swaziland there are very clear examples of the kind of wastage that the monarchy uh, has led to the massive consumption of resources in building luxurious uh, residences in building luxurious other facilities at a time when the country has faced a huge amount of crisis and the kind of political repression that has also taken place under the monarchy so uh, the communists are very clear that they don't want any monarchy at all some sections trying to say that you know let's try to have a constitutional monarchy but i think the overall sentiment on the ground uh, the indications are very clear so very necessary to stand by support give solidarity because this is an issue that often kind of uh, drowns out globally important to point out prashant that swaziland has a population of only a million people tucked in between kwazulu natal in south africa and mozambique a very small country very significant political developments you're only going to get that news at peoplesdispatch.org hope very much you'll go and take a look at a very good and long story by pavan kulkarni um important story must be read we're going to move then from the borders of south africa and mozambique from swaziland uh, we're going to move across the waters to colombia once again in colombia do we do stories other than terrible violence against 
people rising up for justice, Zoe. What's going on in Colombia? Well, Vijay, it's been a couple weeks since we've given an update on Colombia, but uh, very important to do so. Um, on June 28th, it marked two months since the national strike began in the country. And, you know, while we're not seeing the same levels of mobilization that we were in maybe May and early June, the mobilizations uh, continue. And, you know, there have been, and the repression continues. And I think that's something that's really important to highlight because, you know, it has not ceased. And while it's no longer on kind of uh, international news, that doesn't mean that it's stopped. And it's uh, quite concerning. Um, and different human rights organizations, a report that was released on July 1st um, stated that 84, at least 84 people have been assassinated since the national strike began on April 28th. Um, there have been over 100 cases of gender-based violence. And this week, there was a very concerning report uh, reported by a lot of alternative media outlets that um, on the night of June 28th, which was, of course, the two-month anniversary, a 15-year-old was raped by the police officers there. This has been, you know, there have been several cases of this, of sexual violence, of sexual torture that has been happening during the, the two months of strike. Um, you know, some of the other figures, you know, over 3,000 people have been detained. And there are over 70 people that have still disappeared. And for anyone who has been following kind of closely the, the events that have been happening in Colombia, there have been, you know, over the past couple of weeks, pretty horrifying images coming out of, you know, body parts appearing in rivers. Um, the head of a young boy was found in the plaza um, in the department of Valle del Cauca. His head, he was decapitated after being disappeared by police forces. Um, and so I think it's really important that we don't stop talking about Colombia. The demands of the people, as we've talked about over the past two months on this show, and in all of our reporting on People's Dispatch, remain they're calling for the government to stop the brutal persecution and repression of the people. Um, they're calling for an end to neoliberal policies, which make things like electricity, internet, access to education and healthcare impossible. I mean, I think at the same time, we have to highlight that Colombia is currently one of the global hotspots of COVID infections right now. Uh, and the vaccine is privatized in Colombia. And so this is no longer, you know, the government is also distributing vaccines, but people can actually, individuals can buy vaccines. And so what does this mean in a country with, that has one of the, you know, global highest levels of inequality um, that people can now, you know, buy the vaccine. It is not being guaranteed. Um, COVID cases are spiking. It's a really, really concerning situation. We have to keep our eyes on Colombia. On July 20th is the uh, anniversary of Colombian independence and social movements, trade unions, uh, left political parties have called for a massive national mobilization. I'm sure that the mobilizations will be continuing in coming days. You know, the youth particularly have been consistently on the streets mobilizing in these historic points of resistance in the, you know, near the bus stations, near the train stations continuing to reclaim their dignity and demand that the government respect their life. If you get on a boat at Barranquilla in um, Colombia and you decide to go due north, uh, eventually, if the currents don't move you left and right, you'll end up at Santiago de Cuba. Now, 
you've mentioned that in Colombia, they are privatizing vaccines. It's also a COVID hotspot. Meanwhile, this week, news from the Cuban government comes, which is very interesting. Cuba, a country of 11 million people, under a terrible embargo, on the 23rd of June, 184 countries in the UN General Assembly voted against the, well, it's not my language, but voted against the illegal uh, blockade by the United States of Cuba. The reason it's illegal is it goes against the UN Charter. 184 countries out of 193 hold that view. Um, despite the fact that Cuba has been under blockade essentially since 1959, uh, despite that, despite the fact that there's only, well, there's only 11 million people on that, on that island, Cuba has produced five vaccine candidates. Most recently, the Abdullah vaccine, uh, just announced by the important departments in Cuba, the Abdullah vaccine, uh, by good account, demonstrates that it has efficacy of 92.28%. Now, my friends, this is a vaccine produced by a socialist country, a tiny country, 11 million people um, under embargo. It has a vaccine effect efficacy, 92.28%. This competes with Pfizer at 95% and Moderna, 94%, both mRNA vaccines. So here you have Cuba producing a vaccine which is as good as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. I think this is very significant. Um, now let us see whether Cuba is able to roll this out to other parts of the world. Production lines can be opened and so on. I think quite a historical development that the Cubans have produced this vaccine and, and I'm, I'm find it, I find it interesting that reporting on this vaccine has been minimal. Um, one would imagine this would be front page news. Also important to point out there are five vaccine candidates from Cuba. One of them doesn't require a syringe. One of them is an oral vaccine. Now this has got considerable um, you know, application in countries where there may not be the funds to, um, to buy syringes. Syringes are expensive. The syringe cannot be reused, as we know, uh, given the kind of, of, of dangers of reusing syringes and so on. So an oral vaccine is an enormous advance. Let's see whether this oral vaccine can go into production, whether it can help uh, bring vaccination from the estimate of 2024 to sooner than that it's it's a bit silly friends a bit silly that people say well you know better vaccinate now in the uk they're talking about a third jab a booster jab well it doesn't help you if you don't vaccinate india because well along comes the delta variant from india the so-called anglo-indian variant along comes that if you don't vaccinate other countries you're not going to be able to protect yourselves and i think the development of the Cuban vaccines, the five candidate vaccines, including Abdullah, very significant. I just want to remind people, just a factual question, factual matter. Cuba is under an embargo. Cuba is a country of 11 million, yet it has produced five candidate vaccines. I think this is something reporters need to pay attention to. Um, it's a good story to talk about Cuba and vaccines, I agree, but we're going to do a series of terrible stories. Um, Let's move now. Uh, it seems like President Duterte in the Philippines. Now, President Duterte in the Philippines, Prashant, is not going to come as a surprise to people. 
has a kind of orientation towards guns and violence and, and going into the slums and showing people who's boss. Um, apparently, news comes that he wishes to arm various groups, uh, vigilante groups even. People's Dispatch did a story about that. Tell us a little bit about Mr. Duterte and the arming of vigilantes. Right, Vijay. So the proposal, which uh, report, according to reports, has been opposed even by some of the president's allies, involves uh, the government arming private volunteer groups. I mean, he suggested that the government is open to it. And obviously, like in many other cases, the reason is that this is to better enforce the law. And this is uh, a quite an alarming uh, organization, civil society organizations, activist groups in the Philippines have reacted to this with a lot of alarm because... I think uh, the last story, we did this story about the Philippines, of course. The last story we did was on June 17th, in which three people, including a 12-year-old girl, were killed by the army uh, in the Philippines. And at that point, the army said that this was an act of self-defense. So there's, this, uh, there's a particular word which indicates you know, a culture of, uh, say, military, armed forces, whether they be the police, the army, uh, you know, killing people and then saying that it was an act of self-defense because... As the excuse in the Philippines usually is that they were communists or sympathetic to the communist, the banned communist party. And there's even a word called red tagging, which is used in the Philippines a lot, where activists, workers, students, farmers, all of them are accused of being, uh, say, communists sometimes after their death. So one of the key concerns raised by civil society organizations, one of the key concerns raised by activist groups is that Something like arming private citizens, which are essentially militias with, you know, sophisticated weaponry is just going to, you know, blow open the security situation in the Philippines and escalate the amount of violence that is happening in society, which is already at an extremely high rate, at an extremely uncontrollable rate. Many reports have been produced, for instance, the International Criminal Court, the chief prosecutor had sought to take, you know, investigate the role of the government for this so-called war on drugs which has led to thousands of deaths. Many of, again, later reports have pointed out that many of these deaths were, in fact, there was no connection to the war on drugs. Many of these, de- many of these actions took place illegally. These were just extrajudicial executions. And now the prospect of arming, you know, private groups in order to enforce law just seems is likely to just completely double and triple the violence situation, the situation of violence that's there. And this just, again, escalates the possibility that this whole self-defense or fight-back narrative that is so common in the Philippines right now is just going to keep getting repeated again and again. And we've seen all the classic signs of, you know, some of these uh, horrible policies that are taking place. We know that there's an anti-terror law in place, which has been used to go against, you know, wide variety of cross-section of sections of people in society. We've, talk, we've seen how farmers, workers, activists, many of these people are targeted, like I mentioned earlier. So there's this, all, there's almost this pattern of escalating violence. There is this, you know, bogeyman of the Communist Party, which is presented all the time. There is, again, the bogeyman of the war on drugs presented all the time. And now maybe as a, uh, you know, a last straw kind of a thing, we have, say, private citizens being armed. So very, very alarming situation right now because, you know, there's a very clear direction. It looks like, according to these groups, in which the Philippines is going. And that is a direction of more violence and more killing and more persecution of those who stand up for democracy and who are standing up against the government. So very, very dangerous situation right now. Well, 
Um, we're talking about journalists getting um, killed now. We're going to go to Haiti, where our colleague Lautaro Rivera at ARG Medios has been um, reporting about the killing of, of a number of journalists. Um, a terrible situation there. Zoe, please tell us what's going on in Haiti. What has Lautaro been reporting at ARG Medios? Well, Haiti, another story that we've been covering, you know, pretty consistently since the beginning of the year. And of course, over the past couple of years, um, right now, I mean, this, what Lautaro has been telling us and what he's been reporting in our medios, and we'll be releasing a report on People's Dispatch, uh, you know, later on today, um, is that the security situation, which has long been kind of a point of difficulty in Haiti um, has been has gotten much worse. Um, so we know that since the beginning of the year, there's been, the country has been in sort of a political deadlock. Joel Mwese refuses to leave office, even though his mandate finished in February. Uh, he had called for a series of different electoral processes, including a constitutional referendum, which was actually set to take place last Sunday. Um, you know, due to the massive uh, opposition protests demanding that he step down, you know, expressing discontent with how he's managing the situation. You know, they were forced to postpone these elections as well you, as from an, another series of factors. But, you know, parallelly to this situation of political deadlock and, of course, influence and, you know, a product of this is also the, as you mentioned, the situation of growing insecurity and on the uh, very early morning of uh, June 30th, um, you know, 15 people were killed in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. And um, a really, you know, horrifying situation. Two of the people were killed. One uh, is a feminist activist, um, the other a journalist. Um, and, you know, these two people, they were in the private residence of the journalist, um, Diego Charles, uh, Antoinette Duclair was accompanying him at his house and they were shot and killed inside of his house. The police, of course, have come out with a story saying that this was a retaliation attack because of some conflicts between armed groups. Um, but, you know, the same, at the same night, 13 other people were killed in shootings. And so, you know, of course, we have, this is a very important situation to pay attention to because you know, these killings come in a context of increased violence. Um, there have been, you know, 12 massacres, uh, 234 kidnappings, uh, 10,000 displaced from this violence. And oftentimes corporate media will just write this off as this is the destiny of Haiti. This is how it is. Haiti is a violent place. There are violent people. There are violent groups. But I think what's really important is to kind of look a little deeper look at where these criminal groups, you know, where is their funding coming from, where are the weapons. There's a report from the, camp, uh, I think it's the National Campaign for Disarmament in Haiti that, you know, revealed that uh, these weapons are all, you know, manufactured in North America and the United States. Um, you know, there's direct links between a lot of these groups and the current government that refuses to leave office. Um, and, you know, if, above all, the solidarity with the Haitian people who are now forced into kind of a, a lockdown situation because of this increased violence, don't really have any, you know, options. And the international community continues to prop up, uh, I say international community to refer to, of course, the European Union, the United States, 
and the, all of their other kind of institutions, OAS, continue to prop up Jovenel Moise, who has, you know, not done much to deal with the security situation. Maybe he's benefiting from it. The people were on the streets en masse, you know, for months against his rule. Um, so there's a lot of questions to be asked. Why isn't there more condemnation of what's happening? Why is the why are you know Western imperialist powers continuing to prop up this leader who is can be classified as a dictator as he overstayed his term in office? So you know always really important to pay attention to Haiti. Pay attention to the reports that uh, Lautaro was writing on the ground from Haiti, and you know a really horrible situation: the assassination of journalists, assassination of activists, and assassination of civilians who have you know their only crime is just be living in uh, the city. So. Yesterday was the 100th anniversary of the founding of the um, Communist Party in China. Um, you know, I think 13 people met in Shanghai in 1921, sometime in July. Mao Zedong later said it was perhaps on July 1st, but I think that's one of those. It's a familiar thing in, in, in the old world. People don't know ex the exact birthday. Uh, they say, well, I was born in 1920 or 1921, somewhere around there. It's quite fitting that in China, it's 1921. Sometime in July becomes July 1st. Yesterday, there was a very big celebration uh, in China and in other parts of the world. People are offering solidarity. Um, yes, uh, there's stories to be read at the People's Dispatch website about this. All fine. Meanwhile, meanwhile, what is the other um, reaction to China. News breaks. Financial Times cover story yesterday, brilliant story about how Japan and the United States have started to war game, uh, serious war gaming in the name of a relief operation uh, with their ships off the coast of Taiwan, in the name of a relief operation. Uh, US officials telling the Financial Times that essentially they're planning war game exercises and have been doing this since 2019 when Shinzo Abe was the prime minister. Prime Minister Suga of Japan hasn't changed the policy. In 2015, Japan decided to walk somewhere away from their pacifist orientation. Pacifist orientation in the constitution allowed this kind of aggressive military activity to take place in the South China Sea. Very chilling developments in the South China Sea, United States um, with its so-called freedom of navigation operations, has been running shipping very close to the Chinese um, territorial waters. We see, in fact, um, the uh, Chinese territorial waters being breached uh, several uh, on several occasions. Now, friends, it's not just against China. News reports come from the Black Sea. News reports come from near Crimea. News reports come from the Baltic Sea of very close... Uh, and serious provocations between NATO's warships and the Russian Navy. In the Baltic Sea, NATO has conducted sea breeze, a big operation, 30 different countries involved and so on. Recently, a Dutch frigate, Evertsen, uh, clashed with a Russian boat in, in, the, in the Baltics. Meanwhile, the HMS Defender, a British warship, coming up, uh, sailing right up into Crimean waters, provoking Russia, because NATO says that Crimea is not part of Russia, provoking Russia, instead of having a conversation uh, of diplomats to talk about the status of Crimea, 
the status of the Donbass, the question of Ukraine. Instead of having a serious discussion about that, the government of Boris Johnson, the United Kingdom, has sent the HMS Defender to go in there and provoke Chinese warships um, in the Black Sea, off the coast of Crimea. Extraordinarily chilling developments. Mr. Putin uh, was asked in an interview, he talked to Ekaterina Berozovskaya. Uh, he told Berozovskaya that, you know, he's worried uh, about the situation. He says, there was comprehensive provocation, says Mr. Putin. It was conducted not only by the British, but also by the Americans. Um, he gives details of a NATO airfield in Greece from which aircraft, U.S. strategic reconnaissance aircraft took off. Um, he said the tail number is 63 slash 9792. Classic Putin, you know, an old KGB operative, always ready with details such as this, giving us the exact tail number of the U U.S. strategic reconnaissance aircraft. Very chilling developments on both sides of Eurasia. On the one side, inside China, the people are celebrating a hundred years of their communist history. A um, hundred years. This is, of course, not the age of the People's Republic of China, which is merely born in 1949. Um, merely born in 1949. This is not what is being celebrated. It's the communist history. Xi Jinping gives a big speech and so on in Tiananmen Square. But of course, meanwhile, these very chilling developments. We'll be keeping an eye on this. We'll be looking at this carefully. We'll be reporting it carefully from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. You've been listening to Give the People What They Want. It comes to you every Friday from peoplesdispatch.org and Globetrotter. Uh, we hope that you'll come back next week. We hope that you'll bring a crowd. Uh, we hope that you'll come and read our stories. Uh, we're doing all this for you. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, take care of yourselves and see you next week.